Second Samuel 19, an exciting title to this evening's chapter, Some Messed Up People. I mean, we, we, we chuckle because we can relate to that. So can God. <clears throat> Messed up, adversely altered, less than what it should be, what it could be, what it is meant to be. That is what happens or what has happened when we say something is messed up. It's not right. And for us, this historical record, all of the historical records in Scripture carry spiritual instructions. That's why they're so meaningful to us. That's why this is more than literature. It is the Word of God. Paul said to Timothy, the man of God, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's why we study the Scripture, one of many reasons why. In forming our opinions about King David, the giant killer, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the lamp of Israel, we have to be careful that we do not bypass what the Scriptures state about the man, not only in the record, but overall. He is the most mentioned human being in the Bible. In third place, surprise, is Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, the brother of Moses. Moses is in second place. Aaron is mentioned over 350 times, or about 350 times. Moses, about 850 times. David is mentioned 1,150 times at least, by name. This is significant. And it is up to us to extract and apply the lessons. This is why we come to the scripture to learn to be thoroughly equipped for every good work as defined by Jesus Christ. Now Aaron, the first high priest, Moses, the prophet, and David, the king. And in that, the office of Christ is summed up, prophet, priest, and king. These are wonderful lessons in the classroom, which is the sanctuary, usually, or as a rule. Not the only place in our own private time. Where it becomes sticky is when we go out into life, whether it is in the home, in the world, wherever we find ourselves, to have some genuine application to these lessons that we learn about Christ being our high priest, the great prophet, the king of kings, that Aaron has mentioned uh, the third most mentioned man in the Bible, well, he is the high priest of the Lord. And so what do we do with these lessons? It's very much up to us and the Holy Spirit. And so with that background about King David, because we're going to see him, in my opinion, at, at his worst in this, in this chapter, even more so than when he had Uriah killed. That was bad enough. In this 19th chapter, there are quite a few colorful characters and hopefully we'll learn from each one something. In verse 1, And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. Now remember in chapter 18, Absalom was killed. Joab was the one that stabbed him and then three times, and then his men pounced on him. And David had given clear instructions that Absalom was not to be hurt, contrary to the law of God. And Absalom who celebrated his 
outward beauty, and the Bible makes no mention of his inward holiness, there's a lesson right there for us to teach our children and, and to remind ourselves. But ultimately, he was left swinging between heaven and earth. And one of the applications to that, to me, is simple. He was not fit for heaven and not fit for earth if he is going to live in such a way where God is in none of his thoughts. I don't want this to happen to me. That is what we come away with when we look at the life of Absalom and how he finished. I don't want to be like him. In verse 2, so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. Well, whatever the king did influenced the people. That means he forfeited certain personal rights as king. His personal behavior impacted a kingdom. And there it is on display. It says the king is grieved for his son. But this was excessive grief. We have to tread lightly here. Those of us who have lost very close loved ones, we we get grief and, and God allows for grief. But... Excessive indulgence in any passion, including grief, becomes an offense to God. The sin essentially is that which is excessive, something good that is twisted. And, uh, you know, I have a right to um, ice cream sandwiches. I just don't have a right to taking your ice cream sandwiches. And you certainly don't have a right to take mine. (laughs) That's how we think. And so, to this breakdown that David is having is to insist that the temporary is more important than the eternal. Again, it's excessive grief we're talking about, not grief. And grief is bad enough in its own way is excessive in its own right. But this is over the top. It indicates a breakdown of faith. There are limits to extreme grief. For example, in your grief, you're free to to let it all out, but you're not free to blaspheme. That's what I mean. Now, David is not overtly blaspheming, but he's doing other things that are still wrong. In the book of Leviticus, when the priesthood was given and the offerings were first being made, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took it upon themselves to offer to God that which was forbidden. And God struck them dead on the spot. And right after that, we pick it up in Leviticus 10. In verse 1, it starts, and then this is the response. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, brothers of Nadab and Abihu, who were struck dead, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which Yahweh has kindled. So there are borders put on everything we do because sin looks to trespass, push us past the border so that we become trespassers. We're now engaged in things that God is no longer pleased with. And David He needed to be at the head of his kingdom. He needed to be at the gate of the city. And here he is incapacitated by ill-proportioned grief, a grief that was on someone who was guilty under the law of God, called to be the victim of capital punishment, Absalom. 
Again, Exodus, again from last week, I'm saying. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And then again, Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse the ruler of your people. Well, Absalom was in violation of both of those. David tried to shield Absalom from God's judgment for his crimes. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, expound on this. We don't have the time to read it here. Absalom had created a lose-lose situation for everybody. I hope I'm not distracting you fussing with a button up here. It's like, how's he going to preach the word of God? He can't even get a button undone. Well, it's a skill level that you might not be familiar with. There it is. Anyway, verse 3. And the people stole back into the city that day. And the people who are ashamed to... Pardon me, let me reread verse 3. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed, steal away when they flee in battle. So here we see the fruits, the ill-gotten fruits of what David had had sown in his inordinate grief. Uh, We should not be ashamed of righteous victories, but Satan is the accuser of the brethren. No matter what you do right, if he can spin it against you, he's going to take the shot. And here are the people, they won this great victory at risk of their own lives, and David is ruining it, and they're all ashamed now. They don't know how, because he's the leader, and they're watching him. They should be celebrating. We know even when we are absolutely right, justified, even vindicated, or provoked, whenever we are right, Satan still comes along and tries to infuse guilt into us. I mean, you can hang someone with a new rope and, and Satan will complain. I'll wait. <laughs> well, it's funny to me, but maybe you know somebody got hung with a rope and you just I'm not funny. Okay, well, anyway, coming back to this, uh, why is it that when I'm innocent, oftentimes in life I still feel guilty? That I should have done more. I mean, somebody can crash a truck in Peru, and I feel so bad about that. Oh, I should have done more. It's hyperbole, of course, but grr, is this not the move of Satan? And David's grief, in effect, punished the innocent and rewarded the wicked with tenderness. This is not right, David. This is wrong. And if you and I were living this, we wouldn't need a Bible study on it. If we were in a kingdom, we had such a king as David, and these things were taking place, we'd be devastated. And so the more eyes we have upon us, the greater our influence is. And that's, of course, well, easy to understand. But the need to, be, to act more wisely then, and not to govern from our own passions, that's tricky. Uh, a, a pastor... This is pastoring 101 has to learn not to beat the sheep, come up and vent on the people. Um, my pastor used to teach that to us all the time. You know, you don't beat the sheep and constantly telling them what Christians are doing wrong. You have to do some of it or else if you can't bring it into the light, it can't be dealt with. But you can't make that the pattern. And here, again, the people under the influence of David, but a negative influence, they are ashamed of winning 
They're ashamed of putting down what the devil reared up. They understood David's personal tragedy. Still, David is trespassing. He's where he doesn't belong. And uh, he just... He doesn't have this right even as a king. We'll come back, back to that. But we have to remember, people died defending David. And uh, his sobs are, are, are over the top. Verse 4. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, there's a great lesson here for you younger Christians especially. There are, there are so many things in life that don't have a next time. They're done. You've missed it. Or you didn't miss it. And to learn how to pay attention to these things are very important. And the loved ones that are uh, over you in the form of mothers, fathers, uncles, aunts, confidants, etc., they try to uh, teach this. Pastors, you know, uh, the best counseling a pastor can do is preaching the word from the pulpit. There's no better counseling. Sitting down one-on-one has its merits sometimes, but it's not compared to the pulpit. Because God can strike deeper from here than he can strike anywhere. Because you're isolated. He can say things to you that no, the guy next to you doesn't even know God is saying it to you. You know he's saying it to you, and it'll stick with you for a week. I know, because if I make a mistake in the pulpit, it sticks with me for a week. But the king covers his face. David! What about the parents of the sons that were killed on the battlefield because of your son? This is not right. You do not have the right to grieve like this under these circumstances. Well, God's not going to give him a pass. Verse 5, Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines. Yeah, because there's a conflict of reason and care at this point in the kingdom. And Joab was not having this. Above all people, you'd think it'd be someone else, but Joab, so creative is God. When he needs to call on somebody who's ruthless... (laughs) He needs, the, the mission is ruthless. It is, there's not kindness in the mission. There is hardness. There's harshness in this mission. Joab is the guy on the bench that he puts in. God causes all things to work together for the good. When uh, David is corrected by a man like Joab, we know David, a man like David, is not himself. And if he's ever going to get back to being the man that he can be, If he's ever not going to be so messed up, he's going to have to have a rude awakening. Not only, you know, not pampered. Oh, come on, David. (laughs) That just makes sissies out of men. I mean, there are times. I mean, you know, maybe if my mom was around, she could, you know, don't worry, son. Get back in the pulpit. But now there's nobody. I (laughs) I got nobody but God. And listen, that waiting on the Lord... Renewing your strength, it's hard. Uh, Chuckle, chuckle, where is it? We need an applause button uh, sign up here. Because everybody knows, waiting on the Lord can be tough. Why are your knees so bloody? I've been praying so hard. (laughs) All right, I'm alone tonight, Lord, just you and me. 
Anyway, here's Joab. Now, when David is corrected, as I mentioned, by a man like Joab, I mean, the problem is deep. Uh, Joab was a godsend at this moment in time. And he is not going to soften the admonishment. He's going to give him what we would say both barrels. Uh, the message is that God is not pleased with David. This is thoughtless, and this is now selfish grief. It has morphed into something else because of his position, essentially. And he says, today you have disgraced all your servants today, uh, who have today saved your life. This is an outburst on, on Joab's part, and he's outraged. And it is appropriate. And he's not done. He's just getting warmed up. Verse 6. In that you love your enemies and hate your friends. I don't like to stop mid-verse, but we've got to just stop there and listen again to what he is saying. In that you love your enemies and hate your friends. That is messed up. That's not right. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. You talk about a smackdown. This is it. What is the expression on David's face? I think he's beginning to come out of it after this. Joab pours it on thick because that's what the job called for. David had written this probably years earlier when, when Saul was still hounding him. Psalm 145, verse 5. Let the righteous strike me. It shall be kindness. And let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. For still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. How's that psalm working for you, David? The righteous, they're striking you right now. And you have prayed, let the righteous strike me, it shall be kindness. And it is. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The pastor won't talk to me anymore. Yeah, because you won't listen to the biblical advice. What's he supposed to say now? You know, he won't let me waste his time. Yeah, well, your time is more special than his. And not only pastors, friends have to suffer that from friends. How come you won't let me come and just, you know, tell you all my bad stories and, and ask for your advice? Because every time I give you the advice to keep you out of the bad stories, you don't take it. You get back in the problem. Ugh. I can still speak New York. I can go faster. Anyway. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. There was no poem needed to tell David at this point. Joab, can you imagine, David, let me just sing you a little song about what you're doing wrong. No, he, geez, no this is time for pros to give, you, give it to you. Not even kings have the right to behave any way they choose. And if they do behave that way, that doesn't mean they have the God-given right. That's what's going on here. We, um, we live in an ATM society. Attention to me. And... God is not pleased with that. When King Jehoshaphat, who had this problem of hanging out with bad boys, he was a good king, but he just liked, you know, I don't know, it was in his heart. Maybe he felt, yeah, I can win these guys. It always failed. And great lessons in that and picking friends and people who you want to be around with and go to war with. And so evil Ahab convinced, come on, let's go to war together. You, you know, we'd be invincible. We're like the dynamic duo. And they get to the combat zone. Okay, I'll put my camis on and take off the king's robe. And you put this bullseye on. 
and, and a crown on your head and you go out to battle. And, and Jehoshaphat, okay. And the Jehoshaphat gets surrounded and calls out to God. And the Bible says that God delivered him. And he did. But he didn't deliver Ahab. Or that archer at adventure took him out. So Jehoshaphat comes back home. The head of the parade. And they're whistling, you know, the Bridge on the River Kwai song. <laughs> Which can also be used for car commercials. But anyhow. Uh, Second Chronicles chapter 19. The prophet of God, God says, I'm not having this from Jehoshaphat. He's my king, and I want to keep him right. He needs to be straightened out because he does not have the right to do this. And this is where we pick it up. Second Chronicles 19. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. So he's feeling pretty good. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him. And said to the king Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate Yahweh? Therefore, the wrath of Yahweh is upon you. Well, Jehoshaphat, being a good king, scrambled to fix it and the wrath did not come on him. But should you help the wicked and love those who hate Yahweh? Man, that's intense. Other prophets have done that and been threatened. Jehoshaphat recognized the king does not have a right to behave any way he wants. A Christian does not have the right to behave any way we want. And yet, the Christians do it all the time. That's why churches implement policies to keep it under control. And so here, it hurts to see a king like David put in his place by a subject. Uh, that is, Joab, Joab is not that important for this statement. By anyone in his kingdom to have to put him in his place, it is painful to watch. But it has to be, and it is David's fault. Solomon writes about this, this kind of thing in Ecclesiastes. There in Ecclesiastes 10, in verse 5, he says, This is an evil I have seen under the sun, as an error proceeding from the ruler. Now, he's talking about a role reversal. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. He's saying, this is not right. There are some protocols that are good for us, and when they are reversed, they're not good for us. And that's what we're looking at here. Joab should not be correcting. It would be, it would be better if it were a prophet of God coming to David but God has to drive this message home. In verse 7, Now therefore arise, go, and Joab still speaking to David, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by Jehovah that if you do not go out, not one shall say, stay with you this night, and that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Joab knows what to do with this. He's saying, you know, the kingdom is destabilized, and it's not out of danger. It can roll right back to where it was, a spiral out of control again. They will desert you, David, if you don't snap out of it, and it will be your fault. Then what? That's what he is saying to David. We'll find out in the first, when we get to chapter 20, that there are other opportunists lurking. They're out there. And Sheba, this is his name, he's going to rebel. And David's going to have to put that one down too. In verse 8, 
Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. So Joab, David, in David's favor, he listened to Joab. And the results were instant. And the gate, of course, that's in a city like this, where there's no palace because it's not the capital city. That's the city center where the court was held by the king, where he was uh, available to the people with protocols. And wherever the king sat in public, pretty much, was before the people, was the gate. And the leader's influence is always a prime target of hell because of its potential to impact others in the right way. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing David arise based on his, the, the rebuke and do the right thing, and the people instantly respond. And Satan doesn't want that. He doesn't want us to instantly respond to our king. And these parallels are throughout the chapter. I can't even point them all out. We'll be here for a long time. For every one of Israel had fled to his tent. The war was over. He's talking now about Absalom's forces. They're no longer a threat. And so the people are now uh, coming out to rejoice in their victory. Uh, That's what's meant uh, by Israel. You you had the, the ten... Tribes to the north were known collectively as, as Israel and in Judah to the south. Simeon probably brought eventually, uh, sort of absorbed into, into Judah. Uh, then the, the Levites, of course, were sort of neutral. And you had uh, Joseph's inheritance was split between his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then Manasseh split yet again to Manasseh east and Manasseh west. And so if you trace it, you find out it... it it all balances out. Uh, <clears throat> so the, the ten tribes were known as Israel when, when Judah wasn't behaving. <laughs> uh, when Judah did well, then the ten tribes, everybody was Israel. And that's, such was the dynamic. We're going to come to more of that in a moment. Uh, verse 9. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom, verse 10. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So if you were watching a movie, uh, the scene would shift from Mahanaim, where David is, located physically. And it shifts probably to Jerusalem, could be some other uh, tribal territory where they're having this meeting. And so here are the ten tribes that sided with Absalom. Judah that sided with Absalom is not yet in this, this picture. They're coming in a moment. Uh, what they're saying is, listen, you know, David, he did save us from the Philistines and other enemies. We can't dispute that. Listen, David on his worst day was better than Saul on his best day. And, you know, how they just lost sight of this. Why? Because they're messed up. That's why. They're all messed up. Everybody in this chapter has got a problem of some kind. Uh, Even the good guys have got problems here. Things being what they not, not what they should be. Anyway, the absence of the exiled king uh, meant that it wasn't good. Strife was only, it was on the horizon. And they had to do something about this. And so they reason with themselves. They're saying siding with Absalom was a flop. <laughs> That's what they're saying. 
Now what do we do? Hmm, we better say sorry to David. That's, that's what that ninth and 10th verse is all about. And uh, that is, this is going to lead to another confrontation. And then another confrontation after that. And so next time you, f- you say, boy, what's next? Remember, it's a standard operation procedure here on earth. Verse uh, 19, uh, verse 11. 1911, what a nice number. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring, to, to bring back the king to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to this very house? Verse 12, You are my brethren, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? So now the camera shifts again. So it's not in Mahanaim where David is. Well, David is, it is, he's the one sending the message. It's not with the northern tribes. It's now with the large tribe of Judah, which is, Jerusalem is in Judah's territory. Zadok and Abiathar, of course, were loyal to David. They were the priest, and he is sending correspondence. They are representing David there in Jerusalem. Word has reached Jerusalem about what the ten tribes have said. You know, David, hey, saved us from the flop with Absalom. Let's make it back with David. That word comes to him. Well, David now has got to play politics, unfortunately, because everything's all messed up. And he cannot just authoritatively, I'm the king, and I'm coming back to Jerusalem, which we would think. Uh, It's a little bit more sensitive than that. And he knows this. If he were... On top, where he used to be, he, he, he wouldn't be in this mess, but he, would, he wouldn't have to do it this way. But he's not that man yet, as I keep mentioning. In verse 11, it says, uh, speak to the elders of Judah. Now, here's the politics. They and Judah, Judah likely feared that David, David was from the tribe of Judah, uh, David might want revenge on them for siding with Absalom. And so this is why every, it's not so easy a thing. Now, this is not happening in hours. It's more like days and weeks that uh, is taking to re- restore David to the throne in Jerusalem, although he is, in fact, the king. Judah was the first to coronate David as king after Saul's death, and it is only fitting that they be the first to reinstate him uh, and, and, and declare their allegiance. So all this politicking uh, going on here, and it's always nauseous, politicking, politics, and all of that, because um, you know why. Um, so here, over the nation, a type of uh, laziness, malaise, has fallen over the, the people, the nation. Um, this can happen to a church. A church can be comfortable with things messed up. They, they, they were, you know, they're like sort of dragging their feet. There's no one standing up and saying, how dare we delay in bringing back our king? We were wrong in siding with Absalom. And there's nobody, there's no voice like that. There has been in the past men that would step forward like this, but it's not happening now. Of course, we remember Itai's great speech. Ruth, you know, wherever you, your people will be my people. Will you die? I'm going to die. I mean, it was there. Revelation 20, uh, we all know this verse speaking about a church that um, is without their king. They've not brought back the king. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come in to him and dine with him and him with me. Uh, There's the Lord saying, I'm on the outside of the church. You think I'm on the inside. To Sardis, he said, you got a name that you're alive, but I'm telling you, you're dead. Man, I don't want to receive any of those kind of things. Uh, Those those, darts of judgment from the Lord, man, to be told, you, you, you say you're a church, you say you're a Christian, but you're not, and here's the proof. That's pretty bad. Anyway, and then you know what? You say something like that, and the good Christians who are struggling and do 20,000 things right and get one or two wrong, they hear that and they think they're the guilty ones, and that's not who it's directed at. It's the ones that don't care. The ones that just dismiss. Yeah, you know, that kind of attitude. And you say, can anybody be that way? Yeah, they can. And we've been learning about such people as we've been going through Samuel, just the people that were around Samuel. What was up with that? When they knew God had chosen David to be king, and yet they still vilified him and still sought to kill him? What was that? Well, uh, anyway, Judah, it was essential that they accept him as king. Everything is in shambles. The way the people were thinking at this time in the kingdom was far beneath how they once thought as a people. And the righteous influence of David is at its lowest, the low tide. And these are lessons for us. These, these are things for us. I mean, there's a difference. Uh, you know, when you have a church that becomes an apostate, then you can't fix it. You cannot fix something from the bottom up like that. Uh, if the head is sick uh, and the head doesn't fix itself, it's not going to get well. And there's time to, to move on. But uh, if it's not that severe, uh, maybe you can be a part of it and set the example. Anyway, that's another sermon for another time. It's, it's, it's sad to hear people belonging to a church that is going against Christ, and then they say, but I think God has me there. Well, just a warning about that. The Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and that he leads me to green pastures, not dirt fields. I can't, I can't feed in dirt fields as a sheep. I need the word of God. And so just be, if that's you, Be very careful about that attitude. I've not witnessed it working. I witnessed the other, the person either gets comfortable with the church that has become apostate, or they do the right thing and they get out. Verse 13, And say to Amasa, Are you not bone of my, uh, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. So this is a political move, yeah, that is true, to reunite the nation. But David gets the added satisfaction of demoting Joab. Instead of promote, well, he he was commander of his army, there's really nowhere else for him to go up on the ladder. He's not a politician, Joab. Um... But David has a grudge still against Joab for killing Abner, certainly for killing Absalom. He probably didn't like the fact that God sent him to set him straight. And just think, Joab's not finished killing yet. Uh, he's going to get another one. And who's it going to be? It's going to be Amasa, the very man that's taking, the, that's taking his job right here. Joab is going to kill this guy next chapter. Um, right or wrong, we'll, we'll cover it when we get there. 
you know, in, in my notes, I have, you know, all the all notes and all the chapters, and I don't know what's in the next chapter. I know the, what the Bible says, what the story is about, but I don't know the, my comments. And I get excited. I don't want to know until I get there. I want it fresh. And as I start going through it, it's like, boy, this is exciting. And then I've got to go live life, and then it's not so much fun anymore. But anyway, uh, you just kind of surround yourself with the walls of the university and not have to deal with the real world. Uh, that's not advisable. Anyway, uh, David, he is trying to show Judah by taking a mesa and making him head of his army. That's the offer he is making. He's trying to show Judah that he's not out for revenge, but what is good for the kingdom. And uh, that is noble, but we question David's motives because we know he's, he, you know, no, he's out of... Joab is his nephew, and he, he doesn't like him. But uh, Joab offers things that really no one else has to offer in the kingdom. Uh, uh, anyway, it says in place of Joab, write out... Uh, Joab, his epitaph. What will it say on his tombstone? The words of Jesus, Matthew 25, 26, verse 52. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Well, Joab will eventually be killed in the temple by Benaniah as per instruction of David, as per order of Solomon. But we get that in Kings. So Joab, he took the, the path of the sword every time. It was like, he was like, you know, under Bushido. You know, he, he was in the wrong nation. He should have been in feudal Japan. Uh, that's where he would have fit in. Uh, samurai. Anyway, verse 14. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent his word to the king, return you and all your servants. Well, it worked, David's plan. The pronoun here. He, he swayed, that pronoun, the antecedent, who, who is it? Is it God? Is it, uh, is it a Mesa? Uh, is it David's word? Who is the one that swayed? It's, it's collective of sure, but who is the writer referring to? I, I'm going to say it's unclear. A lot of commentators, well, it's David, and others say, no, it's, you know, the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm just going to leave it, you know, I don't know. But it worked, and, and that's good enough. It's not the swaying of the heart. Uh, in a in a deceptive way, as in other passages of Scripture, although it's a different Hebrew word. Anyway, verse 15, Then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across Jordan. So, about 31 miles from Maanaim, Judah marches her armies to Gilgal. That was the first camp of the Jews when they entered the promised land where God rolled away the, the stone of shame from them trekking the wilderness for their faithlessness. And uh, uh, yeah, so sad, there's really no mention of genuine repentance, recognition that David is God's sovereign choice. Uh, you know, again, Saul did far worse and God did not dethrone Saul, nor did the people. God has not, dethron has not dethroned David. And uh, they, this uh, verse 16 now. And Shemaiah, the son of Gerah, Benjamin, Benjamite, who was from Bahurim, 
hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Now, we remember Shemaiah, the, the rock-throwing conniption man. Uh, you know, just having a fit with David coming out of the city. Just unwilling to be kind. He was hateful. Abishai, of course, said, let me kill this dog. And David, you know, restrained him. Uh, so here he shows up again, having proverbial egg on his face. He doesn't know if David's going to kill him or not. <laughs> so <clears throat> he's, he's, not, he's kind of a messed up guy. This is why he gets killed later. Uh, but he's, he's pretty smart in what he's doing here. Uh, he's, he's going to apologize. He's coming out to do that. Uh, he, when Sheba rebels, who is also a Benjamite, Saul's tribe, they have a reason to have a, a, a grudge. There's no mention of Shemaiah siding with Sheba. So he's, he's learned his lesson. And, but he's a time bomb. Verse 17 uh, there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons, and his twenty servants with him, and they went over the Jordan before the king. So a thousand men are with Shemaiah. That's not a big, that's a battalion, and it's not really a threat to David's army. Uh, but what he is doing, what Shemaiah is achieving, he's saying, look, David, I have a thousand men from Benjamin, the tribe that you would think would be against you, and we're welcoming you back. We are submitting. We're surrendering. So he's proving to David, at least he's hoping to prove to David, that he's more of an ally now and, and not an adversary. But in that number with Shemaiah is Zeba, the zebra, that monochromatic creature that, uh, you know, I watched this whole documentary on why animals have these goof some of them have these colors and zebras they, they mesmerize their stalkers they're like whoa <laughs> I, can't, I can't find that guy what happened is when there's like 20 of them running he gets you know blurry vision so the lions have developed these glasses that <laughs> 3d lenses that i'm not lying to you <laughs> anyway uh so he's showing his influence. But Zeba's in that number. He is a Benjamite. He's careful to line up with the welcoming party. But he's still a creep. Verse 18. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now Shemaiah the son of Gera fell down before the king when he crossed the Jordan. This is interesting. This is the only mention of a ferry boat in in Israel, not a ferry boat. <laughs> that would be nothing else but a ferry boat. Uh, I, I find it interesting because I never would have thought that the Jordan had a, a ferry going back and forth. I figured that they'd, you know, swim across, wait for the waters to go down. But it's nice. There are several of these in this chapter. For instance, we're going to get to Mephibosheth, and he doesn't trim his mustache. I bet you they had scissors, uh, you know. I'm, I mean, it's, what else do you trim a mustache with? A razor, maybe, but trimming and shaving are two different things. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll come to that. Verse 19, then he said to the king, this is Shemaiah speaking, do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my Lord the king left Jerusalem and the king, uh, that the king should take it to heart. 
Well, he's fearing for his life. Shemaiah, uh, Abishai is in the group. He can hear this. We just leave it there for a moment. But he's pleading for his life in a very uh, civil way so far. Verse 20. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord the king. An alternate way of the ten tribes is saying the house of Joseph because Ephraim was a large tribe and Nassau, and, and they had a lot of influence. And that's just an alternate to refer to the northern ten tribes. He's careful not to say Benjamin. <laughs> uh, that would not be good. <clears throat> so the psychology of this exchange is, is interesting. Uh, of course... Well, verse 21, we'll let the story tell. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, as David's nephew, Joab's older brother, answered and said, Shall not Shemaiah be put to death for, his, for this? Because he cursed Yahweh's anointed. See, Abishai doesn't buy it. He's like, I, I wanted to kill this guy before. And this is the second chance. That must be the Lord. That's, you know, we all have a little bit of Abishai in us uh, to defend the Lord, when he is insulted. Who doesn't want to go upside Caiaphas' head in the court? What, what believer does not want to take Annas outside to give him a thorough beatdown as an Abishai? Because there's that sense of loyalty, and it's misplaced, of course. That's what Peter did when he hacked Malchus' ear. He was being Abishai, defensive of the, of, of the king's interests. And I get in trouble like that sometimes. Like, what? What do you want to do with the church? You want to walk on the sidewalk? <laughs> you can't walk on the sidewalk. It's God's house. You know, you can just get... I mean, that's not really happened like that. But there are other little things that, you know, I feel my flesh surging up in the name of the Spirit. And it's not the Spirit. It's the flesh. So Abishai is... I love Abishai. He's always in close proximity to David. He's always ready to kill somebody who bothers David. Uh, but there, there are lessons from this, and we're going to cover some of them. He's all business in defense. Uh, David knew how to sin. We know that. And he knew how to be forgiven. But that's not the whole story. He knows how to forgive. The the parable of the Lord about the the, the servant that was forgiven this huge debt and wouldn't forgive someone who owed him this tiny debt. That's pictured here. The great truth of the gospel is that Christ forgives sinners. And we're looking at King David saying, I know what it's like to really mess up. And I know what it's like to be forgiven. And God is certainly uh, holding me accountable to my sin, but he has put my sin away. So, true, if we drop our weapons against the King, the Lord Jesus, uh, we will be at peace with him. Paul said this to Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. This evidently was a common phrase in the early church. That's why he's saying this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds, of whom I am chief. Now you remember earlier he said, I am a sinner, Paul did. And it it sort of escalated uh, to the point where he said, uh, he He said he was a sinner above all the others, and now he's the chief of sinners. So the older he got in his faith, the more aware of his personal sin Paul was. Uh, Maybe maybe you used to love the Lord, be hot for him, and now not so much. Well, that wasn't Paul. Paul intensified 
he intensified in his faith as he got older. He said, what do you mean crying for me? I'm ready to go to Jerusalem and die for Christ. He was an older man by the time he's saying this until ultimately he's, you know, he's in jail. The time of my departure is at hand. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me. And so he is gets intensifying in his Christianity and not saying, man, I gave it my best shot and just life didn't turn out the way. Uh, you know, I'm depressed when I'm not around people. When I come around people, I put on this happy face. And Well, that's fighting. That's, that's warfare. If that's you, you're just fighting. What's the alternative? To, be, to drag your knuckles all the time and drag down everybody with you. Uh, I, I'd like to go out, you know, faith blazing uh, if I could, but it's not easy. So, uh, coming back to Abishai, remember he wanted to strike the death blow on Saul. When Saul was lying in the camp and David and said, who wants to come with me to spy out Saul? And Abishai says, I'll go with you. And they come down right into the camp. Everyone's sleeping. And, and they're standing over Saul. And Abishai says, 1 Samuel 26, verse 8, Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear, right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. He knew how to take care of business. He's, and David, you know, he's, he, David keeps him close. But his quick-draw solutions weren't David's heart. Abishai still, remember, David taught these men how to respect the king. David taught them how to be kind to their enemies without letting their enemies destroy them. And when he had to, of course, David would draw swords with the enemy. And we'll see that later in in Samuel. Verse 19, uh, verse 23, sorry. Therefore the king said to Shemaiah, you shall not die. And the king swore to him, John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, who are those that come to the Lord that the Father gives him? There's only one type, messed up people, sinners. Uh, There are no good people in the presence of God compared to God. Uh, And uh, Jesus continues, And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Uh, Thank you, Lord. So uh, you could put your picture next to that verse. Verse 24. Well, we better get going here because we got so much, there's so much happening. Now Mephibosheth. Uh, remember Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, a Benjamite. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, verse 24, came down to meet the king. Uh, he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. This man is magnificent. He's, he's an invalid. Uh, he was dropped as a child, uh, handicapped, and maybe that's a better. And, and so evidently there's some care he had to, to take uh, of his feet. But he's unkept. He's disheveled in his appearance as a loyal servant. He's not just lazy or poor hygiene. That doesn't bring honor to the Lord. His physical appearance mirrors the messed up state of the kingdom. The kingdom was this way, spiritually unkept, neglected, uncared for. And they didn't even know it. His appearance, he's a walking commentary on the spiritual decline of Israel because their king goofed up big. And the people really didn't do their part also. Those who are looking at Mephibosheth on that day, I think they missed this unmistakable emphasis 
of the Holy Spirit with clarity. It points to us. It says, be not unkept as a church. Show some evidence that you want the king to come back. The neglect of yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross. These things fit together. This is a painful story to read. Coming back now to the narrative. That was the spiritual application to the church, to the believer. Uh, The reason why it's painful is because here is Mephibosheth. He does not groom himself because the one he cared for was fighting for his life somewhere out on the battlefield, David. And his allegiance is is object. It's, It's physical. It's visible. David can look at Mephibosheth and see he does not look like the prince that he was when he dined at David's table. He, uh, he is uh, loyal to David. And we, we're looking at the evidences of him longing for the king to come back, waiting for his return, denying himself. This, uh, this is serious because had Absalom or his loyalists discovered that Mephibosheth was so taken by David, they probably would have executed him. David can't miss that. Verse 25, so it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Um, well, it's a fair question because he'd been lied to by Zeba the zebra. Uh, Mephibosheth's behavior is exemplary. It is a rebuke to David's mistrust, and that's what we're going to get, we're getting to. Uh, David can't miss this. David was, you know, he was a poet. He was a sensitive man. And when he, when he came to things like this, he would have picked it up. How he's handling it, uh, I think is terrible how he handles this. Um, the sight of Mephibosheth gave David the other side of the story that Zebra, Zebra didn't tell. Verse 26, and he answered, O my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. My servant deceived me. My servant slandered me also um, to the king, no less. Proven tactics of Satan. When I say proven, they work. Satan has tactics that work. And we do too. Revelation 12, verse, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Now, verse 27 of Second Samuel 19. And he has slandered your servant, my lord the king. But my lord the king is like an angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. When he says the lord uh, David is like an angel, he's saying uh, your judgments are, are, are right. You have the... Ability to judge because God is with you. That's what he is saying to David. Uh, I've stated my case. You're the judge. Again, this could have cost... What Ziba did could have cost Mephibosheth his life. David could say, you know what? You lied. You, you decided with Absalom. You could have killed him. Again, this proverb. We've read it a few times. It's very important. Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. 
So the first, the guy that gets to speak first may sound like, wow, they did all that other guy so mean. And then you hear the other side of the story. So uh, just just remember that. Uh, it's, it's, it's not right to say, well, you know, there's two sides of the story and, and both sides are problems. No, sometimes it's one. Sometimes it's one knucklehead, one fool causing all the problems. The other one is right and innocent. That is a fact. And... Uh, this is the case with Mephibosheth. He did nothing wrong. Zeba did it all. And, and so verse 28, I, don't, I get animated, you know. I'm like, I don't like these guys. And Thank you, Lord, we're going to get a new nature in heaven. So if we see any of them in heaven, we won't get them. <laughs> I'm going to get you, you are, Zeba. Uh, anyway, verse 28, For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king, yet... You set your servant among those who eat at your table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So Mephibosheth says, believe what you want to believe. I'm just happy to be alive. Verse 29. So the king said to him, why do you speak any more of your matters? Matters, I have said you and Ziba divide the land. What? That's wrong. Ziba gets rewarded. He increases his portfolio. Mephibosheth decreases, or has a decrease. David has disciplinary deficiency disorder. There we go. Triple D. He just, you know, they make them up, I can make them up. (laughs) Anybody can point out the houses on fire. How to put it out, that's the problem. Well, anyway, uh, David now has more unworthy people around him than ever before. This is messed up. It is. I just, as I'm reading it earlier today, I said, but it's just messed up. It's just life. Life is that way. Yeah, I mean, just uh, the way other people drive. You know, you, you say, well, not which ones? All of them. If I'm driving, everybody's in the way. Anyhow, even when they do right, I know they go, they're up to no good. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, verse 30. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. The word rather in the Hebrew, it's, uh, it's emphatic. It's not rude. It's, it's sort of like, yeah, keep it. That's, but, but not rude. But he said, let him keep it. I, I don't care about that. There's emotion. There's emotion in that. And he gets the last word, and it is profound. What happened uh, did David go back to the palace? You know what? Zeba lied. And I'm, you know, you know, how come Abishai sitting there? Let me kill Zeba. But anyway, uh, where is David, that, uh, the hero of the Elah Valley and the hero of Engedi? Bad move, David. And it just, just it bothers me because I, you don't want to see evil get anything. I don't want to compromise a bit with evil. But it is serious. Anyway, verse 31. We, we can get through this chapter if, if, you, if, you, don't, if you hurry and listen. Brazilii, the, oh, this is another great guy. Brazilii, the Gileadite, came down to Rogilam. Let's change the names. You know, Mitch from Staten Island came down to Brooklyn. Something easy to read. And went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Brazilii, his name means a man of iron. I'm, I, I like that, but I'm glad my mom did not name me that. 
Uh, anyway, he is a trustworthy ally and friend, and he is very rich. And so, you know, the men, there are great rich men in the Bible, and there are some pretty bad poor ones. Let's not be unfair in our analysis of people. Usually when people badmouth the rich, they're just jealous. Um, if, you, if you don't badmouth them, they might feel sorry for you and give you some money. <laughs> not. I got stories. I can't tell them. We don't have any time. Anyway, uh, it, David was his beloved monarch, and he is going to make sure that he uh, escorts David across the Jordan. Uh, he, he risked his life for David by siding with him, bringing out supplies earlier. Verse 32, now Barzillai was a very great, uh, was very, a very aged man, 80 years old. That's not, he's just a kid. Uh, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. David never forgot this kindness. Verse 33, And the king said to Barzillai, Come across with me, and I will provide for you uh, while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? He's saying, I'm too old for this. <laughs> I love this guy. He said, look, I'm, palace life, I'm too old for it. And he develops it, verse 35. I am today 80 years old. Well, you said that. <laughs> okay. Can I discern between the good and the bad? Can you serve and taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king. So he's saying, look, I'm just old, and age has, has taken its toll on me, my body. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. I can't even enjoy the music anymore, which is nice, that little, you know, cultural stamp in there, the men and the women singing. And I can't even taste my food anymore. i got to eat crunchy things, so I know I'm chewing. Uh, so uh, it's, he just right out with it. First, he's just like, oh, look, I'm too old to mince words. Verse 36 your servant will go a little while across the Jordan with the king, and why should the king repay me with such reward? a reward? That's a nice way of saying, listen, David, I'm rich anyway. There's nothing else I can do. What am I going to do anyway? They haven't even invented jet skis. Uh, verse 37, please let your servant turn back. Um, where are we? Okay, we got three minutes, or else the kid teacher, the riot. And so let's we'll finish this up. Your servant will, verse 36... Uh, verse 37, please let your servant turn back again, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. And But here is your servant, Kimhem. Uh, let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what seems good to you. Uh, this uh, part here about his mother and father is kind of uh, unique Usually he would say, my father's house. But here he says, my mom and dad. It shows up other places, but not, not that often. And so it's another nice touch. Verse 38. Uh, the king answered, Kimham shall uh, cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then, verse 39, all the people went over the Jordan. And when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. And verse 40, now the king went to Gilgal, Kimam went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, also half the people of Israel. 
Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? Nice. They're going to pick a fight now about who gets to escort the king. Uh, we want to be first in the parade. Uh, just in the flesh, verse 42. So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours, and we have automatic rifles. <laughs> Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gifts? So they're saying, they're insisting that they've never taken advantage of the privileges that they have of being from the same tribe. Why are you making a fuss out of this? Verse 43, And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. Therefore we also have more right to David than you. These are kind of this is messed up people. Uh, why then do you despise us? What? Who said that? We're just parading back. <laughs> uh, were, uh, were we not the first to advise bringing back the king? Oh, you play that card. <laughs> Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So, restoring, to David, restoring David to the king is just as dangerous as fighting Absalom almost. Uh, this is going to come up in the next chapter. This is not over yet. Why is that? They're messed up. Let's pray. Our Father, what a education on human behavior. Uh, Lord, may we do the right thing with this information. As always, to your glory, and may you get us all home safely. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.